Welcome to It's a Question of Balance with Ruth Copland. Featuring out and about, thought-provoking conversations on the street. We consider topics with local relevance and global significance. And now, here's your host for It's a Question of Balance, Ruth Copland. Welcome to the show where we balance the intellectual with the creative and explore whether we have more in common than divides us through thought-provoking conversations. For the Arts Hour, I feature in-depth interviews with local, national and international guests from all areas of the arts. And for this, the Topic Hour, I feature interviews on a wide variety of different subjects that affect us all, both locally and globally. The show combines a debate topic with an arts interview because I feel discussion and creativity are two of the most vital ways we engage with the world. Now, usually for the topic hour, I go out and about and talk to people on the street. However, for this week's topic theme, I'm breaking with that format slightly and instead featuring a special expert guest. This week, we're pondering the question, could everyone use some therapy? To speculate on this necessitates, I think, considering what therapy is, how it's viewed culturally, what it can address and what outcomes it might achieve and how to choose a therapist. My guest this week is ideally placed to help us gain insights in these areas and I'm hoping our conversation today will provide you with some food for thought around our topic question. Could everyone use some therapy? My expert guest is Laurie Gottlieb, practicing psychotherapist, New York Times best-selling non-fiction author and writer of the Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column. Laurie's books include the best-selling Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough and Stick Figure, a memoir which takes the reader on a personal journey through preteen anorexia and the internal and cultural dynamics that shape it. Laurie Gottlieb is on the Advisory Council for Bring Change to Mind, which is a non-profit organisation dedicated to encouraging dialogue about mental health and to raising awareness, understanding and empathy. Laurie is also a valued contributor in the media and has appeared on such shows as The Today Show, Good Morning America, The CBS Early Show, CNN and NPR's Fresh Air. Her new book is Maybe You Should Talk to Somebody, and is being adapted as a television series with Eva Longoria. The book takes us behind the scenes of a therapist's world, where her patients are looking for answers, and so is she. Welcome to the show, Laurie. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So um, our topic this week is, could everyone use some therapy? Even posing this question may seem preposterous to many people. Therapy is frequently seen as a last resort for serious personal malfunctions or, on the other end of the negative spectrum, as expensive, self-indulgent navel-gazing. I'm wondering how you would characterise therapy to someone unfamiliar with it. Yeah, that's a great question. One of the reasons that I wrote the book was I wanted to demystify what therapy is, and I think there are a lot of misconceptions about it mm. that 
keep people away who might benefit from it. I don't think everybody needs to go to therapy, but I do think that many people could benefit from therapy or at least from talking about some of their inner worlds more openly. Um, And so in the book, um, you know, I, I really want people to see that it's not about coming to see somebody talking about your childhood ad nauseum and never leaving. And I think that that's right. a, kind of a, a common stereotype that has nothing to do with what what the experience really is. Yes, yeah. I, I mentioned in my introduction um, that in order to consider whether everyone could use some therapy requires thinking about what it is, how it works, what's possible, how to choose a therapist. And the book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone is a really good place to start, I think, to gain some insights. Um, what made you want to write this particular book now? You know, I was supposed to be writing a book about happiness, oh. <laughs> which I did not want to write. Um, <laughs> you know, I was, I was at the time I was starting out as a new therapist, and what I was seeing in the therapy room was so interesting to me in mm. terms of the human experience, in terms of all that we don't see on Facebook or Instagram um, or even talk about necessarily, um, even though it's the stuff of life, right? So it's not necessarily that a person is in crisis. Um, It's more about understanding, you know, the, the universal questions that we all have, how can I love and be loved? How do I, how do I deal with the things that I can't change? Um, How do I, navigate through the world more effectively? Why do I keep shooting myself in the foot over and over and ending up in the same place? Mm. These are things that we all deal with at one time or another. And I think that what I was seeing was not only, I think a lot of people say to me, well, how do you sit there and listen to people's problems all day? And I say, that's not what I'm doing. Mm. So much of what goes on in the therapy room is heroic and beautiful and people are are making changes, making tangible changes in their lives. And that's that's inspiring to watch. And so I think that I wanted to write this book instead of the happiness book because I wanted to just bring people into the therapy room and show them, you know, real life because I think that they will see aspects of themselves in every single patient that I write about. Mm, mm. Some of the reasons people avoid therapy is because they don't want to seem weak or dysfunctional or they balk at sharing intimate information about themselves. These also seem like possible reasons for a therapist not to share their own personal therapy in case their clients or readers might draw these kind of conclusions. So we might say there was some risk to writing about your personal life in in the way you do in the book and sharing your own therapeutic experience. You could have written an interesting an entertaining book about your clients alone. Why did you want to bring your own therapy into the book as well? So I follow the stories of four patients in the book, but you're right. I'm the fifth patient in the book. And I wanted to do that because I felt like it would be almost disingenuous to have them be so vulnerable about what was going on. Of course, their their identities are protected. Um, But I was also going through an upheaval in my own life at the same time, Mm. and I felt like leaving out that whole part of the story and just being the expert up on high um, felt like defeating the purpose of the book, which is to say, I think we're all more the same than we are different. Mm -hmm. And so many times people feel isolated in their experience because they don't realize how many other people are going through something so similar to 
something they might be going through in their own life. Mm, interesting. In my arts hour, I interviewed Emilio Estevez about his new film, The Public, which he wrote, directed, and stars in. Um, it's a film about homelessness, mental health, human dignity. And as an aside, I have to say it's a brilliant film, entertaining and affecting. I really recommend it. It's still in theatres and uh, will be coming out on DVD a bit later in the summer. So the public, everybody. But anyway, during the interview, Emilio commented, nobody walks this earth trauma-free. It is only a matter of degree. And the comments struck me very powerfully as humbling and connecting. And in your book, you feature case histories of different people who've come to see you. And there are a range of problems and suffering, one, one might say degrees of trauma. I'm wondering why you chose to feature the people whom you did. I wanted to show four very different people, and those are sort of the main people that we follow. There are others, of course, throughout the book. Um, who are very different or seem very different from one another on the surface. And just like what you were talking about, I, I say in the book that there's no hierarchy of pain, mm. that I go from treating, um, you know, a woman who goes on her honeymoon and, and uh, comes back and thinks she might be pregnant, which would be a good thing for her, and it ends up that she has cancer. And, um, you know, ultimately it's untreatable cancer. And she asked me if I'll stay with her until she dies. And then I go from her to someone like this young woman in her 20s who keeps hooking up with the wrong guys, including mm. one from the waiting room because she thinks, you know, well, at least he's in <laughs> therapy. That's a step up. Um, but, but her problems are, 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 are also important and serious in terms of why is she having so much trouble relating to people? What is going on in her in her past that is dictating the choices that she's making mm. um you know and so and there's a you know the uh, the other two that i follow are there's a, a man who's about 40 years old and he's married with a couple kids and and he's very very difficult to like at the beginning he has a lot of sort of narcissistic tendencies and um he's very insulting to me and very abrasive but he you know i know that there's a reason for this behavior and i want to find out why he acts this way, because there must be some some explanation for it um, that, that he can't talk about. It's how he deals with the unspeakable, the, some, something he can't cope with. And and when we eventually get there, it's nothing like I thought it would be. Um, and, and people come to like him the most, I think, in the book, mm. um, even though people dislike him so much at the beginning of the book, and they just want to hug him, you know, when they get yeah. to know him. <laughs> and then there's this, this woman who's, who's about to turn 70, and she She's estranged from her adult children. Um, they won't talk to her because of significant mistakes that she's made as a parent. And um, she wants their forgiveness, and they don't want to give that to her mm. for good reason. Um, and she is very isolated and um, so depressed. And she says, you know, if things don't change in the next year, by the time she turns 70, she doesn't want to live anymore. And so unlike the young woman who has this vast vista of time ahead of her to make much better choices, she's all, this older woman has made all of these choices. Mm. And, you know, what can what can change at this point? And these are all, I think, very important questions that we all deal with so when Emilio says in his documentary which I haven't seen but which I now will on your recommendation oh, it's, it's actually um, a feature film it's not a documentary oh, it's a feature it's film really oh okay good. yeah yeah it's really good yeah um, well I, I'd like to check it out um, 
so you know that that nobody is you know nobody's immune from suffering nobody gets away scot free um and so even though i think we tend to judge pain and put it on this hierarchy and i think that's a lot of the reason that people don't go to therapy is they think well i have a roof over my head and food mm-hmm. on the table so really how bad are my problems yeah um and and i think that what happens is people suffer unnecessarily yeah yeah i think that's true in fact somebody recently uh, was saying uh, a discussion about the past uh, two people of siblings childhood and one of them was saying look you know uh, our mother provided us with a roof over our head we always had a meal every day you know and I was thinking that's a pretty low bar I mean obviously if you in certain situations you know that is a, a necessary but I mean that is a, a fairly low bar I think in western society and and to try and explore what's beyond that um, is part of what therapy is. Yeah, and I think that the people, the reason people won't talk about things and people are so embarrassed or they feel so much shame around talking about anything like that is because they feel like they'll be perceived as whining or complaining or people mm. will, you know, yeah. trivialize or minimize their experience. And the reason to talk about the experience is not to blame people's parents. That's not no, what exactly. we do. Yeah. It's to say, this is a story that you've been walking around with about yourself. And, you know, I was, a, I was a journalist for many years before I became a therapist, and I'm, right. obviously I still write. And I, what, I feel like what I do in the therapy room is act as an editor to say, I think that there's some faulty narrative here. I think that there's some story that you're carrying around that maybe isn't that accurate. And how can we rewrite that story to update that story so that you, you're, you're, you know, the next chapter looks different, so that you don't walk around um, feeling limited or trapped in these ways that, that you actually aren't anymore. Mm. I think that's one of the things that's interesting about the book is that it, it's giving people an insight, obviously, into how therapy can be and maybe, um, uh, you know, laying some worries and, and changing uh, preconceptions or misconceptions that they may have. But I think it also provides a kind of template about how possibly we can approach people in our everyday lives to see them beyond what presents right in front of us. Because you you talk about how for a a therapist, there's this presenting thing, you know, that somebody comes in with, but then there's so much more beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, when somebody comes in, um, I'm listening to their story, but I'm also listening to their flexibility with the story. Mm. How, How open are they to other versions of the story? So, you know, who are the villains and who are the heroes in this story? And is that really how it has to be? Um, is the protagonist moving forward or is the protagonist going in circles? Um, you know, if the other people in the story were to sit on my couch and tell me their version of the story, how would it look different? And is there a nugget of truth in their version too? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you just joined us, you're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and our topic question this week could everyone use some therapy my expert guest is laurie gottlieb practicing psychotherapist new york times best-selling non-fiction author and writer of the atlantic's weekly dear therapist advice column we're going to break now but we'll be back with more conversation after these messages
like the music from It's a Question of Balance with Ruth Copland? Have you ever wondered what the full songs sound like? Now you can find out by listening to the new EP, It's a Question of Balance Music, available from iTunes, Amazon, and It's a Question of Balance.com. It's a question of balance music. Download individual tracks or the whole EP from iTunes, Amazon, or it's a question of balance.com. Hi, I'm Casey, and I'm the second generation owner of Bookshop Santa Cruz. We pride ourselves on being Santa Cruz's community bookstore. We feature an extensive selection of new and used books, children's books and toys, gifts, cards, magazines, and games. Our knowledgeable booksellers can help you find just the right book or gift. We hope you can join us for our author events each week, featuring best-selling authors and books of local interest. And if you can't get downtown, our website has over 3.2 million titles, which ship directly to your home. We even have experts on site to help you publish your own book or family history. Come visit us downtown or at our website, bookshopsantacruz.com. Bookshop Santa Cruz has been an independent bookseller for over half a century in the community we love. Visit Bookshop Santa Cruz downtown. We love our customers and the books that make it all possible. Bookshop Santa Cruz, online and in downtown Santa Cruz. Welcome back. You're listening to It's Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my expert guest this week, Laurie Gottlieb, practicing psychotherapist, New York Times best-selling non-fiction author, and writer of the Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column. And we heard from Bookshop Santa Cruz in the break there, and that would be an ideal place if you're in the Bay Area to get Laurie's new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Somebody. Um, of course, that book is available uh, from all good booksellers. But if you're in this area, then uh, you can get it from Bookshop Santa Cruz or from their website, which has over 3.2 million books. So great place to get it and support independent bookstores. So before the break, we were talking about um, your new book, Laurie. Maybe you should talk to somebody. And in the parts where you um, feature your own therapy, you share a lot about a previous relationship with a significant boyfriend. I'm wondering how that works in terms of writing a book when you're sharing something very personal that is someone else's very personal too. Yeah, I, 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 I love that um, 
one thing that happens in the book, and I, I hope that um, that people can see that with not just the other patient stories, but with my story too, is that at the beginning of the book, um, we see me with my boyfriend, and my boyfriend and I were planning to get married, and um, he tells me that he's decided that he doesn't want to live with a kid under his roof for the next 10 years. And mm. that kid is my eight-year-old at the time mm. who had not been hiding in a closet while we were dating. So, <laughs> no. um, you know, his kids were about to go to college and he was really, he had been without telling me grappling with this question of, you know, the empty nest and, and, and you know, realizing mm now that he would not have that for a very long time. Mm. And um, and at the beginning of the book, my story is that, well, you know, how could he have not, how, how could he have even started dating me back when my son was six? And, mm. um, you know, how could he not tell me this? And when was he going to tell me this? And, um, and, you know, he's very much the villain at the beginning of of the book. Mm. And I talk in the book about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion, which mm. is idiot compassion is what we do with our friends, you know, yeah, you dodged a bullet or yeah, he was a jerk. And, you know, that it makes us feel it's so delicious in the moment. It makes us feel so much better. But but it doesn't help us. Um, and what happens is when you go to therapy is you get wise compassion, which is a therapist will hold up a mirror to you and help you to see your reflection in a way that you may not choose to see it, but that will help you in the long term. So when mm. I do go to therapy, my therapist does not take my side, <laughs> as mm. I had hoped. Yeah. Um, but what he does is he says, you know, it's curious that you didn't see any signs of this, right? Mm. Um, and, and I'm not quite ready to hear it, but, um, but I do say in that very first session that I said, you know, I've been dating him for all these years, and I'm in my 40s, and now half my life is over, and I wasted all this time. And my therapist gloms onto that statement, half my life is over. And that's what our therapy is about. So it, it's not that my boyfriend is a villain. That's my story at the beginning. Mm. It's that I actually did have a role in this. I was as, avoiding this to- as avoidant on this topic as he was because I had a sense that he wasn't a kid person, and, and there were little incidents that I didn't mm. want to look at. And I didn't want to bring it up with him because for the same reason he didn't want to bring it up with me, which was that we really loved each other and wanted to be together. But also I had a kid and that was very important to me, you know, this this domestic mm. part of my life. And and he didn't want to be in that situation, but we wanted to be with each other and we knew we couldn't. And neither of us wanted to talk about that until mm. we had to. Yeah. Um, and so when you say, what was it like to write about him? I think that He's very humanized in the book where, in fact, I, I start defending him, right, to people, where people want to say in the book, my friends want to continue the narrative of, well, he was, he was a jerk. And I say, no, actually, I, I was kind of doing the same thing. And I think, you know, I, I think that people will then have more compassion for, for both of us and, and the ways that we make choices in our lives that maybe from the outside people can say, oh, that's not a very good choice. Mm. So in the situation where you're revealing something about someone else, you're saying your approach to that is that you've given a very balanced view of it. So therefore, this person should hopefully feel okay about, you know, how everything's presented. Oh, yeah. No, he's even congratulated me on the book. Um, oh. you know, so he was, he was very kind about it. Um, so, you know, and I think with all of the patients in the book that you can see that the, the impression that we have of them at the beginning mm. changes over time as we get to know them more. 
Um, so as we get to understand who they are, we say, oh, oh, that makes sense, or I relate to that, or I can see a piece of myself in this person. And it, it draws us toward them and makes us like them. Yes, yeah. You're a very good writer, and um, you worked in, in the film industry. Uh, you're a storyteller. You've chosen to say what you've got to say about your therapeutic work in a creative way rather than in a more informational or academic way. I'm interested how you see your creativity intersecting with your therapy work. I think being a therapist is an incredibly creative profession. Mm. Um, You know, I already talked a little bit about how I feel like, you know, I'm doing a lot of editing of people's Mm. stories in the therapy room. But I also think it's creative in terms of all of the micro decisions that are being made at every moment, which I think I I give people a a window into, Mm. and maybe you should talk to someone. Um, Because, you know, it's not just like we're having a conversation. (laughs) Um, It's a very rich human experience in one sense. And in another sense, it's very strategic. Um, We don't want to waste people's time. So we're being very strategic about what we say, how we say it, when we deliver it, um, timing and dosage of, you know, Mm. is this person ready to hear this? In the very first session when someone comes in, I'm not only listening to why are you here, I'm listening to why now. Why this day, this week, this month did you call me Mm. when this problem has been going on maybe for much longer? Because I'm, I'm scanning for strengths and I'm looking for readiness. And if I, part of readiness is you made the call. You came in, you knew you wanted to make changes. The other part of readiness is, are you really ready to make the changes? So when I say something that maybe is hard to hear, what I like to call delivering a compassionate truth bomb, Mm. um, (laughs) when I do that, and I want to emphasize compassionate. um, (laughs) Not the bomb. (laughs) Right. But but really, you know, it's something that no one else is saying to you, that no one else is pointing out. Because whatever you're doing out there, you're going to replicate in your relationship with me here in the room. Mm. Um, And we always say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, that you can have all the insight in the world, but if you go back out into the world between sessions and you don't change anything about what you're doing in the world, nothing is going to change. Um, You you know, you have to be both vulnerable and accountable when Mm. you're in therapy. So if you say, oh, now I understand why I'm having these arguments in my marriage, and then you go home and you do exactly the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. You're wasting your time. Yes. Insight yeah. will do you no good if you don't make changes at the same time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Earlier in your career, I mentioned you focused on visual storytelling, working as a film and TV executive. Your extensive writing, although nonfiction, is very artistically crafted. Many people think that art can help people process trauma or difficult issues and events that they've experienced or witnessed, whether it be through making art or consuming it. I'm wondering whether you think that experiencing or participating in the arts can have a healing effect. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I think even just reading a book, you know, mm. not you know, not even to mention writing a book, but reading a book, um, you know, there's there's something that touches people about art, whether it's visual art, you know, we can see a painting and be incredibly moved, or mm. we can read something, read a sentence or a passage, and, and, and that can be life-changing for us. Mm. Um, so I think that art is, is incredibly healing. Um, and I also think that um, there are lots of ways to um, 
to process something, you know, and, and sometimes when a therapist is talking directly to you in the therapy room, mm. you might not be able to hear it as well as reading about somebody else's story mm-hmm. and, and, and saying, oh, that touches me or that moves me or mm. that makes me think about something in a new way. Yeah, 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 I agree. Your new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Somebody, is being adapted for television. And the way in which therapy and therapists are portrayed in TV is often unhelpful, I think, in my view, in as much as it often gives a distorted view of the therapy process, usually because the script is being served rather than reality. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the portrayal of therapists in TV and film and how you hope the adaptation of your book might contribute to the depiction of therapy on TV. I think that there are two tropes of therapists in the media. Mm. One is the brick wall, you know, the silent therapist uh-huh. who yeah. doesn't say anything and nobody wants to go talk to a robot. Um, and I think the other trope is the hot mess, the train wreck, mm-hmm. um, maybe like in, in treatment, for example. Um, you know, the, the therapist who's crossing all these boundaries and doing right. all of these kind of creepy things. Um, and, and, you know, or, or the therapist who's very competent professionally, but is, is just, you know, a a neurotic mess, Mm -hmm. um, in his or her personal life that doesn't reflect at all the therapists that I know and, and have worked with. Um, and I think it's really important that we portray therapists as regular people, Mm -hmm. um, in, in the show that we're doing in the TV series that adaptation of maybe you should talk to someone I really want to do a show about a person who happens to be a therapist as opposed to a show about a therapist if that makes sense sense. meaning you know you're going to get to know this person and her family and her life and yes you'll see her at work with her patients and yes you'll see her patients and you'll see their lives and their families and and all of that Um, but it's really a show about the human condition and so it's about you know a person who it could be a show about a person who's a lawyer or a person who's a you know a medical show or it's a doctor Mm -hmm. this person happens to be a therapist and so you get the richness of that world but it doesn't define every aspect of the person's character Mm, I see you're well known through your writing and tv appearances I'm wondering how having a public persona intersects with being a therapist and, and whether it affects how patients relate to you and of course anything can be used to get affect in the therapy context but I'm curious if and how you deal with that. You know it's an interesting question because on the one hand I think people want a very human therapist. Um, They want someone who's lived life and I say in the book that my greatest credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race and so my humanity is my greatest tool, but that doesn't mean that I share my personal life with my patients because what we're doing in the therapy room is about them. So I use my humanity, but in ways that they're not seeing. It's kind of behind the scenes. Um, I think that it's very different to write about yourself in a book than to talk about yourself with your patients, which I would never do in that way. Um, what I, what course, I really meant was because you're sort yeah. of a celebrity um whether being a celebrity because you're known from you know tv and and you have this kind of public persona whether that brings different clients to you and whether their relationship with you is is different because of that Mm. whether you feel like that um changes your therapeutic process you know or at least when people first come to see you or whatever or whether you just don't feel it you know really impacts yeah, well, I, I I almost want to laugh when you say, you know, I'm a celebrity. <laughs> I, I, that's the farthest <laughs> thing that I think of when when I think of describing myself. Um, 
so, um, you know, either as a writer or a therapist, I don't think that either uh, people in either profession think of ourselves as celebrities. But um, but people do read my writing, um, and I, people do come to me often because they've read something that I've written and it resonated with them, mm. and they felt like they would feel comfortable with me as their therapist, not because of any sort of um, you know, glamour associated with publishing where I publish, but more about they read something and it really spoke to them and they said, I want to talk to this person because I think this person might understand me. Right. Okay. So it's actually helpful in a lot of ways. You know, people are getting a, a taste, I suppose, of, of what you as a therapist might be before they go to see you, which of course doesn't happen with many therapists. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Therapy is usually seen as a solution to a problem, something forced upon us because we can't function or, or go on effectively without it. Is there a place for therapy as a contemplative practice, do you think, a, a way of getting more out of life, a choice rather than a necessity? I do. I mean, I think we only get one life. And there's this expression that I love. Um, this is something like, time is the coin of life, spend it well. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be falling apart to benefit from therapy. Um, but I think, too, the title of the book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, doesn't just mean maybe you should talk to a therapist. Right. It means maybe you should talk to the people in your life on a deeper level. Maybe you should be more open about the truth of who you are because it will deepen your relationships. And I don't mean TMI. I want to make a distinction here. Right. I think so often with social media, we think that, oh, let's, let me post this thing on Instagram, and it feels very revealing to all of these strangers. Right, <laughs> um, yes. You yeah. know? And I think sometimes we can get into this, this place of mistaking TMI, t too much information, for intimacy. That's yeah. not at all what I'm talking about. When I no. say maybe you should talk to someone, I mean maybe – what you're hiding, you know, the, the, a lot of times we keep secrets from ourselves and from the people that we know. And, you know, people will keep secrets even from me as a therapist. And right. I think it's because they feel like if they reveal the truth of who they are, people will run. And the, the opposite is true. People will be drawn towards you if they can really see you. So I think so many of us, especially today with social media, are kind of hiding behind these fake personas. And it creates a lot of loneliness and, mm. and low-level depression and anxiety. And what really helps us get through life is connection, is real connection. And yeah. I, I really want to encourage those connections through this book. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think social media has just provided an amplification of what we were speaking about earlier, where people feel like they have to present this front that's all together, you know, but with social media, it's kind of almost a step up from that. You're almost presenting an idealized version of the front that you're holding together. So I think there's a real danger of, of that kind of connection you're speaking about getting further and further away from us if we don't become more consciously aware of that. Right. In the in the therapy room, there's no such thing as the curated persona that we have right. outside. Um, there might be in the beginning, I think some people, you know, there's a performative aspect when you first meet your therapist. And I, one thing I really wanted to do in the book was show that I do the same things as a patient that my patients do with me. So, yeah. you know, I was sort of wanting to present this certain idea of myself to the therapist because I wanted him to like me. I wanted him to respect me. Um, you know, when I would leave, there would be this other woman who would often come early for the next appointment and she'd be in the waiting room. And I think, I wonder if he likes her more than he likes me. <laughs> um, you know, I was such a downer this session, but 
you know, I, I, I think that it's so rare for us to feel comfortable um, just being ourselves. And, and it's also so important to do just that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, if you just joined us, you're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and uh, my conversation this week around our topic question, could everyone use some therapy? My expert guest is Laurie Gottlieb, practicing psychotherapist, New York Times bestselling author and writer of The Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column. She has a new book out, Maybe You Should Talk to Somebody. We're going to a break now, and we'll be back after these messages. Can you imagine living without stress, anxiety, or fear? And can you imagine a life filled with harmony and inner peace? Is that even possible? The Ananda Yoga and Meditation Center in Scotts Valley offers simple tools to help you become more effective at work and more centered in the face of life's challenges. At Ananda, we offer yoga classes for everybody, inspiring workshops, devotional chanting, and Sunday services based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Our teachers and therapists are highly trained professionals who work together to inspire a healthier you. And your first Ananda Yoga class is always free. Visit us at anandascottsvalley.org or call 338-YOGA. That's anandascottsvalley.org or 338-YOGA. Ciao, I'm Luca from Tramonti at 528 Seabright Avenue, steps from the ocean. We are the authentic Italian pizza and pasta restaurant, serving also organic salad and house-made dessert in a friendly family-style atmosphere, indoor or on our lovely patio. Tramonti is open every day, Monday through Friday, from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m., happy hour from front to six. Saturdays and Sunday, we open at 11, and we also serve brunch. We bake our bread and prep our fresh pasta and pizza daily. We want to say grazie to the Santa Cruz community for supporting us since 2012. Allora, buon appetito. Visit Tremonti at 528 Seabright Avenue in Santa Cruz. That's Tremonti at 528 Seabright Avenue in Santa Cruz. And follow Tremonti Santa Cruz on Instagram. It's wonderful, it's wonderful. Welcome back. You're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my expert guest this week, Laurie Gottlieb, who is a practicing psychotherapist, New York Times bestselling author, writer of The Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column, and writer of the new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Somebody. Posing the question that um, I've, I've put around the show this week, could everyone use some therapy, presupposes that everyone would be getting good therapy if they were going. It can be quite hard to find a good therapist, I think, in terms of skill and also in terms of feeling a connection. What are some of the things, Laurie, you would suggest for a person to bear in mind when looking for a therapist, especially 
as when we're seeking a therapist, we're often not our best selves, as you put it in your book. Yeah, I think it's really important that um, you go in for a consultation and see what it's like to be in the room with that person. Mm. All, you know, every every study shows that um, the most important factor in the success of your therapy isn't necessarily the therapist, um, the modality that they use or their years of experience or what kind of training they had, but it's the relationship that you have with your therapist. All of those other things matter, of course, Mm. but what matters most is that relationship. And so a consultation is where you come in, you see what it's like to sit in a room with that person. um, And when you leave, ask yourself, did I feel understood? And was this person easy to talk to? Did I feel comfortable talking to this person? Mm. And if you did, I would go back for a, for a second session. Right. If you, if you have any kind of doubts, would you suggest going for a second session? Or do you think if you have doubts to start with, it, it's better just to, to move on? It's, it's hard to know because yeah. sometimes what happens is somebody will go in and they might have, you know, may have had an experience where they didn't feel maybe heard or they felt misunderstood. And then they go to another therapist and the same thing happens. And then they go to another one, the same thing happens. And sometimes for some people, they're the common denominator, right. <laughs> meaning that yeah. that's something that happens yeah. in their life. But, but I would also take that seriously and listen to it. So if you, if you felt like, ah, eh, I didn't really connect with that therapist, go see another one and see what it's like. See if you connect differently with that yeah. next therapist. Yeah. Yeah. In the UK right now, there's a, a big push to destigmatize mental health with members of the royal family, such as Prince Harry, sharing personal stories. You advise the nonprofit Bring Change to Mind, as I mentioned at the beginning, which is dedicated to encouraging empathy and understanding about mental health. We seem to be at somewhat of an inflection point in, in this regard. I'm wondering what changes would you most like to see in how we view mental health issues in therapy? What I think is great is that um, for the kids who are now in middle school and high school, um, a lot of them are are incorporating wellness programs into the mm. curricula. So, um, so at those schools, they're learning how do we talk about how do we first of all identify what we're feeling, mm. um, how do we do something about the about what we're feeling that's in a, in a positive way. Um, how do we identify that in the people around us, right? So if it may be a friend or, you know, something's going on, how do you deal with that? Mm. Um, and what are some ways to kind of manage our own emotional health? How do we reduce stress? How do we, um, you know, take measures that, that help shield us from depression? You know, how do we right. sleep right, exercise right, eat right? How do we relate to people in a way that is healthier? And I think that a lot of a lot of people who are older than that didn't get that growing up. No, like no. nobody talked to them about that. And I think that this emphasis on your emotional health matters is a really important message for them to carry into their adulthoods. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I think also we, we've talked a lot about communication and I think that's a, another class I would like to see, you know, as well, the wellness is incredibly important, but also something about um, effective communication, because that seems to get so many of us into problems in life, you know, in, in all kinds of different relationships. Is that something right, you would see right. as important to? Oh, absolutely. I think that's part of these wellness programs. Oh, really? That's oh, built, that's that's built yeah. into that is, you know, what what happens when 
you know, how do we get through differences with other people? Um, you know, how do we communicate? How do we talk to people about, you know, what we're feeling in a way where we'll be more likely to be heard? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Clearly, it's important for us to be able to talk about mental health issues more openly and feel comfortable to seek help. At the same time, the list of DSM diagnoses has grown exponentially as our psyche and behaviours are dissected and our perception of what is normal seems to be growing narrower and narrower. I've done a show before asking, are we medicalizing normal? I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this and, and how it might be affecting the way we view ourselves. I talk in the book about how diagnosis can be helpful and that it can help you to understand more about what might be effective in helping this person. Um, but in other ways, I talk about how I don't want to lose a person behind a diagnosis. So, for example, in the book, the person who, who I call John, you know, does he have narcissistic personality disorder, um, you know, or at least lots of narcissistic traits? Absolutely. But if I just look at him as a narcissist, I would lose all of the nuance, all of the shades. You know, there are other notes in the song, and I would lose all of them. And so I think that um, often people put place too much emphasis on a label, a diagnosis, mm. as opposed to everybody is complicated and unique, and there's so much more to them than this, this one constellation of symptoms that we then call a diagnosis. So I'm not that interested in diagnosis. When I'm working with people, I'm interested in understanding who they are in all of their uniqueness. Right, yeah. And I think there's, you know, been a bit of pushback against this in terms of um, realizing that, that none of these diagnoses are a real thing. They're, they're observations and they're a, a kind of a collation of observations that, that a conclusion is drawn from. But they're actually not, I was reading an article that's sort of saying it's a reification. It's not a real thing in and of itself. And, and it's really important to remember that. It can be very helpful in many ways, as you point out. But it, but it also, you need to always bear that in mind. It's not the same as um, a kind of physical medical diagnosis where, where something really specific is, is happening. Would you agree with that? Well, I, actually, I think it is a real thing. I mean, I think that, you know, somebody who has a certain constellation of symptoms, uh, they, they do have clinical depression or they do have panic attacks or they do have generalized anxiety, right? So people might, might have those things. There are certain personality traits that, you know, would say, okay, this person has um, you know, maybe narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder. But again, that's, that, that tells you something about how they relate in the world, at least with the personality disorders. Um, with, the, with the mood disorders, it tells you something about the, their state of mind. And there are effective treatments for those diagnoses. So I, I don't think that they're not real things. I'm just saying that there's so much more to the person and their circumstances and their emotional makeup and their personalities than that one diagnosis. Right. Yeah. When I was saying they're not real things, well, I wasn't saying that. I was quoting an, um, an article that uh, in Psychology Today that um, I don't have handy right now, annoyingly. <laughs> but what they weren't saying that the the, the behaviours and um, aspects of relating weren't weren't real things, but that just the way we're bringing all these different things together, that there needs to be some sort of sense of flexibility of. Um, I mean, you, you maybe don't agree with with this article, but, you know, that with a, that it being the same as an actual 
physical diagnosis of, of a disease. Um, but I think also what I was trying to get at more was that um, it seemed like we used to tolerate more different kinds of ways of, of being in the world. Um, and that to a certain degree, I think certainly in America, you know, the, the kind of um, real concentration on diagnoses has a lot to do with medical insurance in, in terms of people being able to get help. They have to have an official diagnosis. And I'm just, I'm just sort of speculating on, on how that makes us view people, um, perhaps less on the, the end of, of more serious um, diagnoses and more looking at you know, different kinds of minds, the, the way people process right. information and see the world. I mean, people with sort of, you know, Asperger's and, and things like that, you know, or even, you know, dyslexia, um, 20% of people have dyslexia and yet they're perceived as not normal. I mean, that's a fifth of the population, you know, so that's kind of what I w was trying to sort of um, think around. Right. So I think there are two sides to that. One is that, um, some people, um, you know, want sort of a, a, a quick fix um, with, through medication. And mm. so, um, you know, it might be easier in their minds um, to say, well, you know, I'm really depressed. I'd like a pill for that, please. Um, and, you know, in some cases, medication is very, very effective. Mm. Um, the, the gold standard for treatment of clinical depression is talk therapy combined, combined with medication. Mm. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, sometimes a lot of these sort of characterological or relational issues, um, you know, are not going to be helped by medication and that there isn't necessarily a quick fix. That doesn't mean you're going to spend years and years in therapy, um, but it means that it might require some time and some work on your part. Mm. And so I think when people do kind of, um, you know, sometimes they will say, well, I have this diagnosis, therefore I would like some medication they're not realizing that maybe that's not the most effective treatment in their situation. Right, yeah. There's a lot of research that, that shows connections between mental health and physical health in many different ways. Um, yet the mental health financial allowance in most people's health insurance is fairly limited. It, it seems insurance companies, as well as people generally, are reluctant to assign funds to therapy. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on therapy being seen as an investment rather than an expense in I oneself, really, you know, right. <laughs> I mean, right. we put, we put money into a lot of things and yet for some reason, you know, that's an area where people are, it, seem reluctant. Yeah. I think a huge problem with, um, with the mental health care system, in addition to the physical health care system, just our health care system right. yes. is, yeah. is access. Um, you know, we, that's, that's why you know, we, we've had this problem in this country for so long yeah. where, um, you know, even, even with, uh, you know, our current situation, you know, there are very, medical insurance is very expensive and the deductibles are very high and yeah. out of pockets are very high. Yeah. And so, um, and you know, the networks are very limited. And so what happens is, you know, access is very limited, and, and it had been before the current system as well, that it's very hard to, um, you know, to be able, it's different when you go to a doctor once and say, okay, I have this problem, or you're going to therapy and it's a weekly expense. Um, so, 
it's hard. You know, there are clinics where, for example, I trained and where most people are do, getting their hours for training. Mm, yeah. They're supervised and they could get low fee or no fee psychotherapy. But again, it's with trainees and interns. Yeah. Um, so it's a, access is a huge problem. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And hopefully that will change. I, um, I, I don't know if you know, the Hippocratic Oath was rewritten in 1964 by Luis Lasagna, academic dean of the School of Medicine at Tufts University and is used by many US medical schools. And one of the statements in it is, I will remember that there is art to medicine as well as science and that warmth, sympathy and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. And I was quite surprised when I read that as there's such an emphasis, in, particularly in the US, on, on intervention with drugs and procedures. It, it, it seems almost a prescription for therapy. I, I'm wondering, we're coming towards the end, but just briefly, how would you like to see therapy intersecting with healthcare? I think that the healthcare system, um, you know, because of the, the demands on physicians to see so many patients in the course of a day and the insurance company's demands and all of that, um, I think it's really hard to, to bring that humanity to it, and yet so many physicians do. Mm. Um, they really go into it for the right reasons, and they really want to have these, these human connections with their patients, just as we do as therapists. Um, and and I, I think there are enough people out there who really believe that and practice that way, despite how hard it is to do so in the current climate. So I think it's very hopeful because I think that, um, you know, when I was in medical school, we had a class called Dr. Patient, mm. and it was all about the human side of what it's like to be in a room with people as a physician. Mm. And I think many medical schools do that nowadays. So I think that along with bringing, you know, mental health awareness and, and understanding to younger people and then seeing people training uh, who are going to go into healthcare, whether that's physical healthcare or mental healthcare, um, I think people really do focus on that and, and want to bring that kind of humanity to the practice. Right. Yeah. Well, I think uh, your new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Somebody, is, is a really excellent um, way for people to begin understanding um, therapy and also how it could really enrich their lives and as you say help them also to understand how communicating more with others in, that they care about could be a, a really positive thing for them so I really encourage listeners to get the book it's um, very interesting and entertaining uh, as well as um, elucidating so it's congratulations it's a very good book thank you so much I really appreciated the conversation well it was lovely talking to you thanks Laurie take care the question I, I had this week was, could everyone use some therapy? Laurie's view was that probably, no, not everybody um, needs therapy. Um, I brought up the idea of perhaps um, therapy being a contemplative practice, which I think it can be, but also perhaps as a contemplative practice, as a, a means of getting more out of our lives, then probably life coaching is a great way to do that rather than specifically therapy if you're if you're looking more to just see how can I make my life better how can my relationships improve how can I understand myself more deeply and bring more things into my life function at my highest potential and really flourish I think if you're looking for that then life coaching is a wonderful way to do that and if you're at a point where you really feel things 
aren't working for you in whatever way and to whatever degree, then therapy um, is definitely the way to go for those kind of issues. <laughs>